This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. <laughs> Guys, please, before we get started, strap in. We got some exciting, exciting stuff today. I want to first of all thank you all for coming out here. You are my Hanukkah gift. Seriously, just having you here every week is my Hanukkah gift. It's so great to see you all here. I want to thank you. I want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for putting out this beautiful, beautiful lunch and learn. We got all the extra upgraded food today in honor of Hanukkah. And I want to thank the amazing staff over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. And it's filled with over a quarter of a million classes in Jewish content, all 100% free and enough to blow your mind. Don't believe me. Go and verify it for yourself. Go to www.torahanytime.com or download the Torah Anytime app and fill your mind with great wisdom, ancient and modern. I also want to point out that you can find my classes, at least the ones I give on Thursdays, on, on the app stores. I have a podcast under the name Living Jewish with Burnham. Living Jewish with Burnham, and if you like the podcast or Spotify or Stitcher or Google Play or whatever whatever podcast form you use, you can get it. And if you like it on Torah Anytime, please feel free to follow me if you enjoy that and share it if you're enjoying the classes. And with that, we move on to our topic at hand, Hanukkah, Hanukkah, Hanukkah. Okay, what I want to do today is I want to go deep into our understanding of Hanukkah. As children, we all learned that Hanukkah happened. Why? Well, if you watch the uh, vice president's husband, Doug Emhoff, he said it because the Jews hid for eight days. Unfortunately, you have Jews, yeah, like literally, Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, who is a Jew, um, not so connected, obviously, if he's married to Kamala Harris, but... um, he came out and said the reason why we celebrate Hanukkah is because the Jews hid for eight days. No, but that's not what it is. I'm sure you learned as a child that there was this war between the Greeks and the Jews, and the Jews won, and then they lit the menorah. Today, I really want to go deep into our understanding of Hanukkah, and I also want to present material that I don't have full sources for. I actually literally, I came up with this idea this past Shabbos. I was in Beitar in Israel. I went in, I got to visit my daughter who was in seminary there, and I, my brother made a bar mitzvah. And I kind of formulated these ideas there. I did run it by a bunch of rabbis to see if there are any red flags that went up. There were no red flags, however, because it's not fully sourced. It's more of an idea that I came up with. It is totally open for debate and open wanton destruction if you can bring me sources to knock it down. So please feel free to do so, uh, but let's go for it. Okay, so let's, let's try to understand what caused the Greek occupation in the first place. We know in Judaism that things don't happen on their own. We believe that everything happens through God's hashkacha, God's divine providence. And as a matter of fact, there are Talmudic statements describing why each one of the four primary exiles happened. According to Jewish thought, there are four primary exiles. Babylonia, they destroyed the first temple. Persia, where we almost got wiped out by Haman, in the story of Achashverosh and Haman in the book of Esther. There is the Greek tragedy, catastrophe, and then there's the Romans. The Romans, of course, destroyed the second temple and exiled us. Interestingly, the Greek one that we're going to learn about today is the only one that actually occurs in Eretz Yisrael. It occurs in the Holy Land. It occurs on Jewish ground. The Greeks did not 
pull us out to anywhere, did not exile us to anywhere, but they created an exile within our own borders, which is an incredible darkness. We also know that nothing happens without it coming for a very specific reason. And Rabbi Yerucham Levavitz, who was a great Musar master, he writes in his magnum opus, Das Chachma Musar, the understanding, the knowledge of wisdom and Musar and ethical behavior, volume 2, Mimer 69 and 70, that there's a principle that God leads us according to the way that we're, we're interacting. And if something happens to us, even with other nations, other forces, it's a sign of something that's happening from within. Could be even. Again, I've, could be even the, this terrible war that we're going through was a result of the absolute acrimony and bitterness and dissension that was going on in Israel leading up to this horrible attack. There was such incredible, unfortunate hatred and anger in Israel of Jew against Jew. And who knows? I, I don't know. But I know that the Das Chachmo Musa, Rabbi Yerucham Levavit says that if something happens to the Jewish people, you can try to look at what exactly happened and try to understand how that resulted in that specific type of attack or that specific type of event. Now the Talmud tells us very clearly why four out of the, sorry, three out of the four exiles happened. Let's see your source sheets. Source number one, Babylonian Talmud tracted Yuma, page 9a. Migdash Rishon Mipnei Macharav. Why was the first temple destroyed? And we were led into Babylonia in chains? Mipnei Shlosha Dvarim Shahayuba, because there were three things that happened. Avodah Zarah, Vigilah Arayas, Vishvichas Damim. Because there was idol worship, forbidden sexual relations, and bloodshed. Very clear. What about the catastrophe we had in Persia, where we were almost wiped out by Haman and his henchmen. The Gemara says that as well. Megillah, tractate Megillah, page 12a. Sha'ulu Talmida Vazir B'Shim Bayuchai. The students asked for B'Shim Bayuchai. Mipne Manis Chaibu Sonem Shayisrael Shaboso Dar Kloya. Why were the Jewish people in the time of the Haman story decreed to be wiped out? And he said to them, interestingly, Amr Lahem Imruatem. He said to them, You guys tell me. Huh? Rabbis being asked a question by students, let me throw it back at you. Amrulo, they said, because they went to the feast of Achashverosh, which was an incredible, massive feast that he used to celebrate his dominion over the Jewish people and over the Jewish God. More about that when we get to Purim. But they went to that, that feast and they enjoyed and they ate and they drank, and because of that, they had a decree of death put upon them. They said to him, if so, only the Jews in Shushan should have been killed, because those were the Jews, or at least should have been decreed a, a decree of death, because those were the Jews who ate at the party of Achashverosh, Amrulo. So they said to him, they said to him, you say, so now it's your turn to answer. And he said, because they bowed down to a massive idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made uh, in the days of Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah, the, one of the, some of the last three prophets. So that's the second catastrophe. The third one, why was the second temple destroyed? Babylonian Talmud. Yuma B, it's a 9B this time. Of Sheni, the second temple, they were sitting and studying Torah all the time. The mitzvot, they were doing mitzvot, they were doing acts of kindness. Why was it destroyed? Because they had baseless hatred. 
which teaches you, by the way, how bad baseless hatred is. At the first temple, they were doing murder and idolatry and all kinds of promiscuous behavior. And the second temple was only baseless hatred. And yet, they both brought about the destruction of a temple. So the Talmud clearly tells you why three out of the four gullios, three out of the four exiles happened. It does not have anywhere in the Talmud that says, why did the Greek exile, Yavan, Greece, is considered one of the four exiles. There's nowhere in the Talmud that says, why did the Greek exile happen? So why did it happen, ladies and gentlemen? If you want to find a source, the earliest source that I found for this, and there may be an earlier source that I'm not aware of, please let me know. L. Burnham at PartnersDetroit.org. Again, L. Burnham, burn H-A-M, at PartnersDetroit.org. The earliest source that I could find for this is a famous statement in the Bach. The Bach. Who's the Bach? The Bach is the Bias Chadash, the new house. He wrote a, a, um, a compilation on the Torah. The Torah is one of the first, earliest forms of halachic compendiums. The Bach was written by Rabbi Yoel Circus, who lived. Circus spelled with a S-I-R-K-E-S, not Circus spelled the other way. He lived from 1561 to 1640 in Poland. And he wrote this classic commentary on the Torah, which again is one of the earliest halachic compendiums. And he writes a lengthy piece, which we're going to study together. We're going to get studying here. Look at source number four. Okay? And the translation is a rough translation because I really wanted to get the nuances here and there may be some background information that you don't... You, you, it's good to have the rough translation. Okay. And I'm going to just read the translation. However, you can also see the Hebrew version. If you would like to read the Hebrew version, go for it. Okay. He says like this. We need to understand, because it's difficult. Why did the rabbis establish Hanukkah? When they established Hanukkah, they established it as days of praise and thanks. And they established these eight days of Hanukkah, to give thanks and to give praise. It does not say they established the eight days of Hanukkah for donut feasting. It does not say they established the eight days of Hanukkah for re-gifting. It does not say they established the eight days of Hanukkah for latka competitions. It says they established the eight days of Hanukkah to give thanks and to give praise. Says the Bach, why do they establish them to give thanks and praise and not days of feasting and rejoicing? The rabbis instituted two holidays on the Jewish calendar that were not in the Torah. Purim and Hanukkah, right? Because all the other holidays are in the Torah, like Shavuos and Pesach and Sukkot and Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. They're all in the Torah. The rabbis added two holidays to the calendar, Purim and Hanukkah. However, Purim are lasos as yimei apurim e'ela, yimei mishtav asimcha. They're days of, when they established it, they made it as days of feasting and rejoicing. Eating and drinking and drinking and drinking, right? Lots of drinking going on in Purim, right? So why, says the Bach, did they establish Hanukkah as days of praise and thanks and not days of feasting and joy like they did by Purim? Continues the Bach, and it seems that on Purim, the main decree was because they enjoyed the feast of Achashverosh, where they enjoyed with their bodies, they imbibed, they went to the feast of Achashverosh, and they ate and they drank, and therefore, it was decreed on their bodies that their bodies should be wiped out. 
the Hamanic decree. The decree of Haman was to kill all the Jews, men, women, and children, to kill what? Their bodies. Because they sinned with their bodies by eating and drinking and filling their bodies with the pleasures of Achashverosh's feast. Therefore, it was decreed on them that their bodies should be killed and destroyed. Because those bodies enjoyed the forbidden eating and drinking and the forbidden feasting and rejoicing. So how did they do repentance? They repented by not eating and not drinking. Esther says, when she finally gets a hold of, of Mordechai, and Mordechai tells her to go to the king, she says, fine, I'll go. However, gather all the Jews. Leich, Kenosis, Kol gather all the Jews. V'tzumu alai, and fast on my behalf. And don't eat and don't drink for three days, night and day. And me and my girls will do the same, and then I will go to the king to try to get this decree annulled. And whenever it says the king, it obviously refers to God as well. So she says, look, we sinned with our bodies. We ate and drank at the, the, the party of Achashverosh that was celebrating the downfall of the Jewish God. So our repentance has to be with our bodies. Don't eat, don't drink. <coughs> and then when we had the incredible, miraculous overturning of Haman, and his downfall, what did we institute? We instituted days of eating and drinking, feasting and rejoicing. That's the story of Purim. However, by Hanukkah, the main decree, continues the Bach, was because, and here it's the first time you're about to find out, why did the Greeks have control over the Jews? Here we go, guys. By Hanukkah, the main decree was because they weakened themselves in the service of the temple. Right? What was the wording over here? Iker hagzera haisa al shehisrash They weakened themselves with the service of the temple. And because of that, the main decree was to void the service. The Greeks did not say we're going to kill the Jews. The Greeks did not say we're going to physically annihilate the Jews. What was their decrees? To take away our service of God. As it was taught in the Brisa, they decreed to seize the continual offering, the Tumid, that was a special offering that was done in the base of Mikdash in the temple every day. And furthermore, they were told, the Greeks were told there's a certain mitzvah, that as long as the Jews do this mitzvah, they're always going to be fine. And that mitzvah is the menorah. Because the verse in Exodus says, when it tells you about the first time, the mitzvah of the menorah, it says, Leha'alos ner tamid, to lift up a flame all the time. And as long as they keep lifting up that flame with that menorah, they're going to be lifted up. And of course, what did the Greeks do? They came in and they destroyed all the oil, they defiled all the oil, and they seized the menorah service. We were weak in our service in the temple, and therefore... The result was that they decreed upon us that we would not have service of God. And what was the repentance? What was the fix? And when the Jews repented by sacrificing their lives for the temple service, they went all in to be able to bring back the temple service, to fight for the temple service. And who did Hashem save them through? Not the warriors, but the Kohanim. Who are the Kohanim? The Kohanim are the people who did the service in the temple. So we see that the re- the Redemption happens about through sacrificing themselves for the service, through the people who conduct the service, the Kohanim, who were the Maccabees. Therefore, the miracle was done through the lights of the menorah, because they sacrificed themselves to reinstate the temple service. And therefore, they established the days of Hanukkah 
as days of praise and thanks. Because that is the service of the heart. What were they missing? They were missing their heart. It says they weakened their service in the temple. It didn't say they stopped doing the service. It says they weakened this rush lubavoda. They weakened the way they served in the temple. They, their hearts weren't there. So what's our fixing for it? We establish days of praise and thanks. We serve God with our hearts, with prayer and with thanks. Prayer is always called avoda shabalev, the service of the heart. And therefore it's the rectification of what they weakened when they were not in it, they were, their hearts were not in the performance of the mitzvahs. Now, by the way, just in case you're getting nervous and saying, wait a second, so there's no Hanukkah parties? I'll tell you what there's no, by the way. I'm sorry to tell you this. There's no Hanukkah. The whole Hanukkah gift thing, that's a, that's a borrowing from the Jolly Red guy, if you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? That's not really a, a, a real uh, Jewish thing. We don't really have a source for giving Hanukkah gifts. But, however, he does say, and for the matter of halacha, it appears to me, not like the Maharagi quotes another commentator who says there should be no parties on Hanukkah. He says, rather, we should make a feast because the custom of making a Hanukkah feast has already been established by the great men of the earlier generations. So we can still, you can still have a, a Hanukkah party tonight. Don't worry about it. But now, ladies and gentlemen, you know what caused the Greeks to be able to come in and invade us on our own land, on the Holy Land, and to stop our service. It was because we were weakened in the service first. Now we've got to understand, ladies and gentlemen, what does that mean to weaken the service? They still were performing the service. But they weren't in it. They weren't, their hearts weren't in it. So now we've got to go back a little bit further. There was a group of men in the beginning of the Second Temple era. They were called the Anche Knesses Hagadola, the men of the Great Assembly. If you want to see in source number five, you could see about... And they were the ones who set up the whole structure for how we lived in the Second Temple era. They were the ones who got God to abolish the desire for idol worship. They were the ones who instituted the prayer service as we know it today. The whole silent devotion to Shemona Esrei, source number five, Rabbi Yochanan says, or some say it was in a brisa, Mehav Esrim Zakanim, Umehem Ubehem Kaman Avim, 120 elders, and amongst them were some prophets. They were the ones who established the davening that we do, the 18 blessings that we daven three times a day. That was the people who established the way the second temple service was going to be. Now, one of the last members of the Anshek and Esa was a man named Shimon Hatzadik. There's a Mishnah in Ethics of Our Fathers that says, Shimon Hatzadik was from the last remaining people of the Anshek and Esa of the men of the Great Assembly. Shimon HaTzadik had a student named Antignos Ish Soho. Antignos, the man from Soho. That's where he came from. He has a teaching, which we'll get to in a moment. But he had two students that were famous and two students that were infamous. Two really bad dudes. Let's first see what his teaching was, and it maybe will give us some light and understanding who his bad students were. Antignosh says the source in number six, Ethics of Our Fathers one three. Antignosh Ishocho Kibel Mishimon Atzadik. Antignosh Ishocho was the prime disciple of Shimon Atzadik, who was from the last men of the Great Assembly. Who Haya Omer? His most important teaching was: Do not be like the servants who serve the master just for the reward. Rather, be like the servants who serve the master not for the reward, just because it's the right thing and the fear of heaven should be on you. Okay? 
So now we know what his main teaching was. Now he had two students who were famous. Their names were Yo- uh, Yossi ben Yoezer, Ish Tzereda, Yossi, the son of Yoezer from Tzereda, and Yossi ben Yochanan from Jerusalem. But he also had two students who ended up creating one of the first splinter groups off of Judaism. He had two students who started their own new versions of what they called Judaism, but wasn't really Judaism. Those two students' names were Tzadok and Baisos. Tzadok started a group called the Tzadukim, the Sadducees, and Baisos started a group called the Baisusim, the, the Bathysites. For some reason, the Sadducees get a lot more uh, fame and recognition in the historical picture. Now, what, what, what caused them to go off? Now, one of the main differences between the Sadducees and the Jewish people, because they did not create a Judaism, they created a new religion. Unfortunately, Judaism, in its 3,300 plus years of history, has had many new groups that create a new version of something that's not really Judaism, but they call it Judaism, because they they feel like they've got it right. This is the true way. One of the main biggest sort of differences that the Sadducees, the Tzadukim and the Baisusim introduced is they said, we don't believe anything the rabbis said. We follow the word of the book, and that's it. Now we know that in Judaism there's the oral law, and there's the written word. The written word is the book, but then there's the oral law, which is so huge and so vast, and is the teachings of the rabbis throughout all the ages. So they said, we're not following anything the rabbis said, we're only going with whatever is in the book. Where did they go off? Where did they go off? There's a statement in what's called Avos de Rebbe Nasson, which is a text that was printed usually together with minor tractates in the Talmud. It's a Jewish agadic work, and it was compiled in the Gaonic era, which is roughly 700 to 900 of the Common Era. And he writes the following, in Avos de Rebbe Nasson, chapter 5, 1. And I'm just going to do the translation, and you should have it in there as well. Yeah, source number 7. Antignos, a man of Soho, had two students who were studying his words. They would then teach them to other students, who would teach them to other students. But those students then questioned what they had learned and said, why did our father say such a thing? What does it mean? The main teaching of their rabbi was, don't be like the people who serve God just to get the reward. He said, what are you talking about? Why not? Have you ever seen a person who goes to work for somebody all day in his fields and doesn't expect a paycheck at the end of the day? Have you ever seen a United Auto Workers employee who goes to work at the factory for two weeks at the Ford plant and at the end of two weeks when it's Friday, he says, no boss, I don't need a paycheck. I just did it. I'm not one of those servants who serves just to get the prize. No, no, no. I'm just doing it because I like making cars. That never happened. So the Tzadukim and the Baisusim, these two offshoot groups, they said... We're not following this transition with this this uh, this tradition anymore, and they rejected whatever was written by the rabbis. It was not what was written, whatever was given over by the rabbis, 
and they walked away from the whole thing. Interestingly, by the way, it says over here, and they would make a point of always using gold and silver things, says the Avos to Rabbanasan, not because they were so enamored of them, but because they said, the Pharisees have a tradition that they're going to have this, this uh, they deny things in this world because they're investing for the next world. I looked in the whole book of the Torah. I didn't see anything in the book of the Torah that says anything about the world to come. Therefore, I don't believe there's a world to come. Therefore, I better adorn myself with gold and silver in this world because there ain't no next world. Now, my friends, I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Because it makes sense, their question, right? Their question is, what are you talking about? Why are you saying I shouldn't serve God because I want to get a reward? Does anybody go to work every day and not expect a reward? Does that sound like a good question to you? Seems like a reasonable question, right? It's not. Sounds good, but it's a fallacy. Did anybody... (laughs) My wife and I... Our kids were spaced in such a way that we were changing diapers for 16 and a half years straight. (laughs) Without a break. Thousands and thousands, maybe even tens of... Well, between my wife and I, for sure, tens of thousands of diapers we changed. Tens of thousands of diapers. And I'll tell you what, never once did my child say to me, Dad, you did good, here's $10. Thanks for changing my diaper. (laughs) Not even once, ladies and gentlemen! Not even once. But I kept changing them. Do you know why? Because I was not a servant serving my child with the intention to get a prize. I was serving my child because I love my child and I wanted to do for them what's best for them. Okay? Which teaches us an amazing idea. That not everything in the world is transactional. Not everything in the world do I do because I'm expecting some kind of prize out of it. Sometimes I just do it out of love and respect. If... A great rabbi would say to me, Laby, can you please go to the bookshelf and get me a book? I would say, gladly, and I would run to the bookshelf and get the book and bring it back to him. Not because he's going to pull out $2 and give me, here you go, but because I have such respect for him and I'm so appreciative that I get the opportunity to serve a great man. Not everything is transactional in this world, believe it or not. What's the difference? Do you have a relationship or not? If you have a relationship with somebody, then you're willing to do all kinds of things with no reward at all because you love them, because you have a relationship with them. If you don't have a relationship, then you want transactional. I want reward. If I'm going to do something, if I'm going to put out effort, I expect some kind of reward. If I'm going to the Ford plant and working for two weeks, I want a paycheck. If you want me to drive to the airport to go pick somebody up, if it's a good friend of mine, I pick him up for free. If it's a guy I don't know, you better give me some shekels if you want me to go to the airport and pick somebody up in the middle of the day. It's either going to be transactional or not, depending on if I have a relationship or not. So, my friends, let's try to understand the rationale of the Sadducees, the Tzedukim and the Baisusim, who were so turned off by the teaching... Now you should serve God not for the reward. 
They were so turned off by that. Why? They must have believed that they don't have a real relationship with God. And why would you believe that? Because you don't believe in yourself. I think every single one of us at some point have said, God can't really love me. I'm just too messed up. Whatever. God doesn't really love me. God doesn't see me as his son. When you don't feel good about yourself, you can't imagine that someone else loves you because you don't love yourself. If there's no relationship between me and God, if I'm disconnected from God, because there's no way that God loves me like a son, I don't even love myself. Then, I assume God doesn't love me either. And if God doesn't love me, then I don't have a relationship. And if I don't have a relationship, then I'm not doing anything for free. I'm not going to pick somebody up from the airport if I don't have a a relationship with him. So they became transactional. Everything had to be by the book. What's the reward? What are you doing for me today? Anything that the rabbis wrote about, they didn't trust that God loves the rabbis. They didn't trust that God loves them. They didn't trust that God loves the rabbis. They didn't trust that God would give the Torah in such a way that human beings would be actual partners of God in the story of the Jewish law and tradition, which of course God did. They didn't believe that. If you don't have a relationship with God because you feel like you're disconnected, God always loves you, but if you don't feel like you have that relationship with God, then everything goes to transactional. Because when I have a relationship with somebody, I'm willing to do so much for them. I'm willing to sacrifice so much for them. I'm willing to change tens of thousands of diapers. I'm willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on their education and their clothing and their housing. Because I love them. I'm not doing it because I'm expecting anything in return. But if I don't love them, I'm not willing to work for nothing. The Sadducees, Sadok and Bysos, they say, Antignus Ishtocho, our teacher, tells us you should work for nothing. No way. I don't have a relationship with God. God doesn't love me. If he wants me to do something, I'll do it if he gives me something. So let me look at the book. The book says you do this, you get this, you get that. Okay, fine, I'll do that. That's it. There's no relationship between God and the Jewish people. Special relationship. Okay, what we're coming out with over here is a very important fundamental over here. The fundamental idea is, number one, if you don't have enough love and respect for yourself, it's hard for you to believe that anyone or anything else has love and respect for you. That's number one. So there's a big, a big dichotomy between the, the Sadukim, the Sadducees, and the Jewish people. What is the nature of the relationship between God and the Jewish people? Is it a close, loving relationship? Or is it disconnected? Which then brings to the next step. If there's a close, loving relationship, I'm willing to do so much. I'm willing to sacrifice so much for you. If there's not, it's all transactional. What are you doing for me today? And that's exactly what the Tzadukim said. Anybody else in the world go to work not expecting a paycheck? I'm not going to serve God not for a prize. I'm going to do it, whatever God... For, for the, I'm, I'm in it for the prizes. Now, one more very important component that this brings up. 
The difference between effort and results. Which also has to do with whether you're in a relationship with somebody or not. Recently, I just came back from Israel. Now imagine, if I got back from Israel, I got back very late, I've been traveling for 24 hours straight, right? I had delays, my, my El Al flight landed late, I missed the connecting flight. By the time I get back, I'm exhausted. Imagine, ladies and gentlemen, if I come into my house and my wife says to me, Laby, I know you've had such an exhausting 24 hours of travel. I made you an amazing dinner. I made you all your favorite foods, your favorite meats, and your favorite side dishes. And I even put a, a, a dessert in for you, your favorite dessert. And I say, oh, great, I'm starving. And I can smell it already when you come into the house. Oh, the smell. Mm. We go to the oven, and we open up the oven, and it's all burnt. Right? Sometimes when you smell the food too much, it's a sign that it's burnt. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Depends if it's low cooked or high cooked. I don't know why. I always feel like by the time you smell the pizza, it's already burnt. You know what I'm talking about? You put the pizza back in the oven to reheat it. By the time you smell it in the toaster oven, it's already gone. So we go to the oven and everything is burnt. Now, if I'm a decent husband... And I know that my wife put so much effort into making me a three-course dinner for when I got home late at night from a long day of travel. If it worked out, it didn't work out, it doesn't make a difference. I, can't, I say, wow, <laughs> I can't believe you did so much for me. I appreciate it so much. Now, it didn't work. It all burned. So we'll order pizza. But I'm so thankful to you. That was so thoughtful of you. I appreciate so much all that effort you put in for me. That's what happens when you have a relationship with somebody. You appreciate, you appreciate every bit of effort they put in. Let's now go to somebody I don't have a relationship with. I call somebody up and I say, an Uber, I say, can you get me, I need a ride to the airport. He says, no problem. He has no relationship with me. He's not doing it for free. He says, that'll be $50. I say, no problem. He comes to my house to pick me up. We drive and he gets up early in the morning even to go come pick me up. We drive five minutes outside of my house, kapunk, 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 kapunk. The car goes kaput. Car is dead. I'm gonna have to hop into a different Uber right now. Do I pay the guy 50 bucks? Sorry, man. <laughs> I appreciate it, I know you, or, or even better, he doesn't even get to my house. He calls me, he says, I was on the way over. I got up at four o'clock in the morning. I was on the way over to pick you up, but my car stalled out. Sorry, man. I gotta call another Uber now. Do I pay the guy? No, because I don't have a relationship with him. It's all transactional. I don't have a relationship with you. You're, it's all transactional. You did me the service, you get the money. You don't do the service, you don't get the money. Again, but if you have a relationship with somebody, my wife, she did not serve me a three course dinner, but she made me, or she tried as hard as she could, and I'm so deeply appreciative. That's the difference between a relationship and a disconnected person. If I have a relationship with you, even if it doesn't work, I so deeply appreciate it. If I'm disconnected from you, sorry, Charlie. Okay. Let's get back now to the Tzdukim. The Tzdukim, they believe that we were disconnected from God. 
Therefore, everything is transactional. Therefore, it's all about the results. It's not about the effort. We see this in a very fascinating Talmudic discussion about one of the biggest points of contention between the Tzedukim, the Sadducees, and the Jews. What was it? It was about how to do the service in the temple on Yom Kippur. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and as God tells us in Parshas Acharemos, in the book of Leviticus, he was supposed to bring an offering of incense in the Holy of Holies. There was a raging debate between the Sadducees and the Jews. How does this service look? The Sadducees would say, when you're outside of the Holy of Holies, you put together the ingredients. You put the fire, you put the incense on the coals, and you bring up a big cloud of smoke, and you walk into the Holy of Holies with a big cloud of smoke. The rabbis taught us that no, you're supposed to go into the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies you put the incense on the coals and you bring up the big cloud of smoke. This was such a big debate that the rabbis used to make every Kohen Gadol swear that he would do the service the right way because the Talmud tells a story about a man who was the high priest, but he was secretly a Sadducee. He was a Tzdoki. And he said, my whole life I've been waiting for the opportunity to do the service of the temple the way that Tzedukim teach it, where I'm going to make the cloud on the outside and then bring the cloud in and not make the cloud on the inside. And he uses there the same language, by the way, as Rebbe Akiva when he was being put to death. And his, rabbi, his student said to him, Rebbe, how are you still serving God now? And he said, my whole life I've been waiting to serve God with the pinnacle of sacrifice that they're, they're scraping my, my, my flesh off and I'm still serving God. The same language this Tzeduki Kohen Gadol's Tzeduki high priest said about doing the service where he makes the cloud on the outside and brings it in. Now we look at it, it seems like a foolish debate. Who cares where you make the cloud? At the end of the day, there's a cloud in the Holy of Holies. But no, 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 no. This is such a deep idea. What it represents is, what does God see as the service of God? The effort or the result? According to the Sadducees, who were all transactional with God, God doesn't care what I do as long as I come in with the cloud. As long as the cloud is there, that's the result. That's all that matters. I come into the Holy of Holies with the cloud. I bring you the delivered goods. And now I get paid. According to the rabbis, no, 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 no. The real focal point of the service of God is what you're putting in the effort. So they would go into the Holy of Holies and there they would do the effort, they would do the actions of putting the incense on the coals because they said the real service of God is the effort. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, now we understand what it means when it says the Jews were weakened in their service. It said, we said that the reason why the Greeks were attacking the Jews is because the Jews were weak in their service of God. It doesn't say they didn't serve God. They served God, but they were weak in their service because they were doing it from a transactional perspective. They were doing it not as children who want to sacrifice for God, but rather as people who saying, show me the money. Show me the money. I'm going to do the work and you better give me the results. That's a very weak service of God. So what happened? God says, I'm going to bring you a nation who's going to come and they're going to enslave you over here. 
And that nation is the Greeks. The Greeks have two fascinating things about them. Number one, the Greeks had gods, by the way. Did the Greeks not have gods? They had a whole pantheon of gods. Their Zeus's and their Apollo's and Nike. and They had all kinds of gods. Lots and lots of gods. But if you read the Greek mythology, you see that the gods are totally 100% disconnected from humanity. They're in their heavens. They're busy partying. Bacchus is supplying all the wine and making all the orgies and the, and the parties. And, and Zeus is eating his children. I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole, Gansa, you know, it's a whole matzib. It's a whole situation over there. They're partying. They don't care about human beings at all. Which, by the way, is so different than the Jewish God. You look at the Jewish God, and from the beginning of the Torah, he's clothing Adam and Eve, and he's visiting Avram when he's sick. He's burying the dead. He's entirely involved with humanity all the time. So the Greeks have gods, but they're totally disconnected. The Greeks are totally transactional. And what do the Greeks worship? They worship results, not effort. How do we know this? Because what did the Greeks build? Right next to the temple in Jerusalem, they built a stadium. What is a stadium? A temple for results. You see two people in the stadium, and one guy is able to jump up and slam the ball in the hoop, and this other guy who's five foot six has been trying his whole life, a little Jewish white boy who's been playing basketball four hours a day since the time he was old enough to walk and he can't slam the ball and he's not going to make it into the NBA and he's not getting any VIPs or MVPs. It just doesn't happen. Sports is a place that worships results. Now, I remember reading, it's ironic, it was actually a Jewish guy. There's a sport, I don't know if you guys know this, there's a sport of the Olympics, right? The whole Olympics, that was based on the Greeks, right? They were the ones who instituted the Olympics. And the whole idea of Olympics, again, what are we worshipping? We're worshipping results. Who runs the fastest, who throws the farthest, who jumps the highest. There's a sport in the Olympics called speed walking. Did you guys know that? Yes. It's the most ridiculous sport in the world. And the way, the way you determine whether you're running or walking is you have to have one leg straight and one leg bent. And when you're running, you have both legs bent. It's a whole... It's, a, it's like a sport that you never hear of until every four years. People are like, and the speed walking team this year. And you're like, so these people, like, they're not... You know, if you're an NBA player, so you play basketball all year, every year, and you've got fans, and everyone knows about you, and people call you by name... If you're a speedwalker, you're a nobody until every four years people are like, oh, speedwalking. Like, it's like that ice sport with the brushes. Uh, what's that called? Uh, curling. curling, exactly. No one even hears the curling until the sport, the Olympic Games. Oh, curling, you know. So, anyway, so there was this Jewish guy. There was a whole write up about him in Sports Illustrated. It's going back decades. I remember reading it, though. He was a Jewish guy and he was a speedwalker. <laughs> and he spends his whole life training to walk fast. And the only time that ever really matters, the only competition that anybody ever cares about is the Olympics. And then it was basically talking about he was preparing, preparing for the Olympics. I don't remember what year it was, where they, maybe it was Atlanta in 90, 2002, whatever. I don't remember where it was. The bottom line is he gets out on the field and something happens and he loses a couple steps, he falls down, whatever it is, and boom, his whole four years of effort. But he's looking forward to 2028! <laughs> The poor guy, he puts in so much effort. No one cares. That's Greek life for you. Nobody cares about what you put in. Nobody cares about your effort. 
You either have the money or you don't have the money. You drive the car or you don't drive the car. You win the race or you don't win the race. That's the Greeks. Hashem says, you Jewish people have weakened in your service. You've become transactional with me. The Sadukim, the Sadducees have become so powerful that they actually had a Kohen Gadol, a high priest. And he's demonstrating to me in the temple on Yom Kippur that all the relationship with God is all transactional. We're disconnected. It's you give me this. If I give you this, I'll give you the prize. And God says, no, no, no. You're going to suffer from these Greeks who are transactional, who feel like they're disconnected from their gods, who don't care about the effort and only care about the results. So what's the reversal of Hanukkah? The reversal of Hanukkah, my friends, is people who said, I don't care about the results. All I care about is the effort because I love God and I have a relationship with God and I'm not disconnected from God and I'm God's children and I will go fight against an army that is vastly superior to me. Imagine if we decided to go fight against the, I would say the American army, but today the American army is so pathetic and so weak, they're being attacked by the Houthis all over the Middle East, and they're not doing anything. So if we attacked the American army right now, they'd probably surrender to us, just this group right here. You know what I'm saying? But if we were to go fight against the Israeli army, like the most technologically advanced army in the world, and I'm like, okay, guys, let's go fight the Israeli army. What a joke. They would send couples pinpointed missiles. They would like, take us out one at a time with pinpointed missiles. You know what I'm saying? Like, it'd be a joke. But that's what the Hashmonaim, the, the Maccabees, they were Kohanim. They're going to go fight the, the Greek army. You have elephants? Do you have advanced training? Did you spend years in military training like all the Greeks did? Do you have 16-foot Sarisa spears? Do you walk in formations 10 abreast and 10 deep with these shield walls? You don't get any of that. You're a bunch of rabbis sitting and studying Torah. You're going to go fight the Greeks. What kind of joke is that? They said it's not about the results. It's about the effort. I want to show God I'm going to sacrifice myself for Him. Because I have a relationship with God. And when you have a relationship, it's the effort that counts. Not the results. And what happens? They put in the effort, and God says, I'll take it from here. And boom, they win a decisive victory. And then they come to the temple and they see that all the oil has been defiled. The kids are like, oh man, let's go home. But they say, no, we're going to search for one little jug of oil that we could find. What's the probability of finding a jug? The, 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 the Greeks methodically destroyed all the oil. But no, I don't care. We're going to search for it anyway. The result doesn't make a difference, but we're going to put in that effort. Because we want to light the manure. We want to bring the godly light back into the world. What happens? They go for it all effort. And God says, I'll take it from here. And they find not only a jug of oil, but a jug that miraculously lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. Because when you put in the effort and you say to God, I have a relationship with you, I'll just sacrifice for you, I'll do whatever I can for you, God says, I'll take it from here. Hanukkah is a very interesting holiday. It's the darkest of the dark. When do we light the menorah? During the nighttime. The only mitzvah, really. It's almost the only mitzvah that we do at night. Specifically, I mean, obviously, we, we eat in the sukkah both night and day, but that's night and day. That's the whole eight days. But we shake the lulav by day, and we blow the shofar by day. Now, Pesach, when Pesach Seder is at night, but that's because Kabbalistically, there is no night, the night of Seder. But there's, it's all day. But this mitzvah we do at night, and where we're really supposed to put it is like very close to the ground, below ten tfachim is the ideal place to put it. In Israel, they actually do it like that. You're supposed to put it dark, close to the ground, on the left side of the door, 
in the middle of the darkest time of the year. What's the message? It's specifically when you put in the effort, when it's the hardest and most difficult time, when it's dark in your life, when your life is difficult, and you so easily could just give up and fade away. But you say, God, no, I'm going to put in the effort. I'm probably not going to be successful. I've tried so many times to get closer to you, God, and I've failed every time. But I'm going to do it again because it's about the effort. I'm going to try. God says, you do that? I'll take it from here. And you end up lighting up lights that last way longer than any fuel you thought you had. That's the miracle of Hanukkah. The miracle of the triumph of those who say, our relationship with God is a relationship of love. And because of that, even if you're not going to reward me with anything, I'm going to do it anyway. We're going to put, not transactional with God. I do it because I love you. I'm most likely going to fail. It's so dark outside. It's so difficult. But I'm going to put in the effort anyway because I love you. And God says, you wait and see what the results of your work is going to be. May God give us the koyach. We're living in such dark times right now. It's so easy to just be depressed and give up and say, Ugh, whatever, I can't, I can't, I can't anymore. I'm just withdrawing. I'm just going to disassociate, disconnect from God. But if we instead say, no, God, I know that you love me. I know that I'm your daughter or your son. And I'm going to put in the effort. And it's not even about the results. I'm not likely going to be able to succeed because I've tried before and it hasn't worked. But I'm going to put in the effort. I'm going to pick up that little candle and light it to the flame. God will, emir to Hashem, will God willing, let that flame shine far into the night all the way through the end of the winter and into the great, great spring with the great light coming out and the entire Geula Shalema, the full redemption. May we all have the koyach to light the flames and may we see God taking that flame and pushing it more and more and more, lighting up our homes, lighting up our communities, lighting up our families, lighting up our world, and bringing the final redemption of the Messiah speedily in our days. Thank you for coming, thank you for listening, and thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.